Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Gibology, a podcast all about the Bee Gees. My name is Sarah and I am your host. In this episode, we'll be looking at quite possibly the most controversial project the Bee Gees were ever involved with in their career, the 1978 movie Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That's right, it was bound to be a topic of conversation on this podcast sometime, and since this month marks the 43rd anniversary of the movie's release, that time is now. Regarded by many as one of the worst movies ever made, it was panned by critics and has long been considered a blip in the careers of everyone involved. But is it really as bad as people say? That's what we're here to find out. I'm delighted to be joined by some esteemed guests who I will introduce in just a moment. They'll be giving their perspectives on the movie as fans of the Bee Gees and the Beatles respectively as we try to figure out whether it has any redeeming features whatsoever. So before we get started, I just want to give a little bit of background on the Sgt. Pepper movie for those who haven't seen it. It is a musical which is based on the Beatles' 1967 album of the same name, which tells the story of Sgt. Pepper and his Lonely Hearts Club band who brought happiness to their hometown of Heartland through their music. After his death, Sgt. Pepper's musical instruments were left to the town's museum, and his legacy is now carried on by his grandson, Billy Shears, played by Peter Frampton, and his friends, the Henderson Brothers, played by the Bee Gees, Barry, Robin and Morris Gibb. But the band soon find themselves having to defend their magical instruments from Mean Mr. Mustard. There's a whole gang of villainous characters, including the Future Villain Band, or FVB, a.k.a. Aerosmith, Dr. Maxwell Edison, played by Steve Martin, and Father Son, played by Alice Cooper. It's a star-studded cast in general. It's got Earth, Wind and Fire, Billy Preston, George Burns, Donald Pleasance, Frankie Howard, and loads and loads of others. The soundtrack covers the Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road albums, and also has a few songs from other Beatles albums like Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Let It Be. George Martin, fittingly, was the man who produced the soundtrack album. The movie itself was produced by Bee Gees manager Robert Stigwood, fresh from the success of Saturday Night Fever, which he had also produced, which explains how the Gibbs came to be involved in Sgt. Pepper. So let's bring in our guests. I'm joined by David from Bee Gees and Me, pop culture writer, podcaster and Beatles fan, Jan, and also Phoebe from the Beatles podcast, Another Kind of Mind. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having us. No problem. Thanks very much for joining me. So just to start off our discussion, I want to get your thoughts on your experiences of seeing Sgt. Pepper for the first time. So, David, let's start with you. When was the first time you saw the movie? Oh, boy. Um, In the 90s, it would have been the 90s. I would have seen it on VHS cassette tape um, back Back in the 90s, as a Bee Gees fan, there wasn't much content to consume um, other than studio albums, uh, a couple live tapes on VHS, and Sgt. Pepper's The Movie. So when I I remember finding the, the, the tape in Suncoast uh, movies. It's a, it's a, uh, like one of those stores you'd find at the mall, like a Sam Goody or, a, or one of those things. And I was like, Oh wow. It was with the BG section. I was like, yes. All right, let's do this. And, um, I think at some point I would have known of the notorious nature of it. Um, so I think I went in with 
expectations, um, you know, already set low. Um, but you know, as a Bee Gees fan by myself without knowing any other Bee Gees fans, you know, as a teenage boy in the nineties, um, it was, it was part of the canon. It was part of this is the Bee Gees legacy. So I had to love it by default. I, you know, obviously recognize its shortcomings and forgive it its shortcomings because it was the Bee Gees in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, and John, what about you as a Beatles fan? I actually went to go see this when it came out in 1978. I don't remember which movie theater it was, but I do remember my dad drove me and however, several friends at the time to go see it. So we're talking summer 78. I was 15. My friends were probably like in the 14 to 16 year old time frame. And this was in the dark ages of the time of stone knives and bearskins when there was no internet. I mean, basically we went by movie reviews that were in the newspaper or maybe you saw it on television. So I don't even remember what the actual feeling was at the time but my friends and I were all sort of in the height of like second wave Beatlemania because um 1975 76 this is when they started doing this whole push again of like it was a second wave of, of Beatles fandom and we had all grown up with it but not really and then of course the Bee Gees had been huge the year before with Saturday Night Fever and I'd always been a Bee Gees fan also one of the first songs I remember hearing on the radio was Lonely Nights um, so I was probably about seven when that came out. So we were really excited about it. And um, we went to the theater and I remember being very, very disappointed. I mean, there were a lot of like Beatles related projects around that time. Um, the Hollywood Bowl album had been re-released. We had the rock and roll album from Capitol, which was a compilation of stuff. And then we had Beatlemania. We were pretty much into the bands that were that were in the film, too. I mean, Peter Frampton was huge at that time. Um, so it was an experience. Like I said, we were kids and uh, we knew nothing about it. And I do remember we were all kind of disappointed at the time because we were expect. I don't know what we were expecting, but we were expecting more. And things have changed since then. I, I will talk about that later, but I definitely have a different view now than I did when I was 15. But it was an experience, <laughs> definitely a movie experience. But it, there wasn't, there, I mean, this is really before we had home video, there was cable TV. So there, there wasn't a lot of choice of what you could go to see. It was like whatever was in the movie theater. So a little different than these days. Yeah. And Phoebe, you're a Beatles fan too. Uh, but from what you were telling me beforehand, you actually loved the movie when you first saw it, right? Absolutely. And it's so fascinating to me to hear different, like all, all these different perspectives from three different fans who had seen it in different eras like the 70s the 90s I saw it in the early 80s um, when I was a child like a like a small child like preschool age it came on tv a lot in the early 80s and it was like one of my favorite movies ever I mean I watched it over and over and over again like every time they would run it I would watch it and I loved everything about it I mean there was nothing not to like about it it was a a musical film that had music that I loved in it and it was colorful and everybody in it was like appealing to look at. I liked the aesthetic. Um, it was easy to follow. I still think of it as a kid's movie. Mm. Like I just think that it was to my mind, it's all, it's made for kids. So reading reviews about it was kind of weird to me because like when I went to rewatch it this week for the podcast, I saw like reviews of, were on Rotten Tomatoes, like 
30%, you know, like they, they were just awful. Yeah. Like you, like you were saying in the, in the beginning, this movie really got trashed hard, like the worst movie of all time. And uh, that kind of perplexes me because I think it's pretty good. <laughs> or at least see what the big problem with it is. Um, maybe I have a unique point of view. I don't know. And you, you'd still fe- very much feel like that now uh, as an adult. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I mean, just in my experience watching it this week, I didn't have a really different response to it, honestly. And again, I mean, maybe that's hard. Maybe it's hard to separate that from my initial imprinting, mm. you know, um, r- uh, response to it. Um, I do have a lot of good feelings and memories associated with it, but I. I wasn't disappointed by it. The, you know, I, I found the plot really easy to follow and um, I just found it super enjoyable. I, I, but I did, I did kind of think, I wonder what people were expecting. Like I did have that thought of like, if I was a teenager in 1977, when this came out, right. like, and I went to a theater, what would I be expecting? And then would it be kind of a bummer because the Beatles weren't together and they probably were never going to get back together. And you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, so the, I feel like maybe there was a lot of baggage that went into this. And then as far as the Bee Gees go, like, I don't know what people were expecting from the Bee Gees, but I think they did a great job. Yeah. I just jumping in because, yeah. you know, obviously you're talking about my experience too. I think part of it was that yeah. we were expecting more in terms of, I guess, a performance thing. This was like right before MTV, but there were promo videos and there was some music, video type stuff going on visually and i think that's one of the things that was kind of a letdown at the time is that we were expecting i don't know what we we're expecting but i think maybe more like magical mystery tour maybe a little bit more plot maybe a little bit more just flashy visuals like cool stuff going on and like i said my my perspective having rewatched it again this week um is very different i mean i, I didn't hate it when i first came out and i still yeah. don't honestly understand the ire except that i think that people were like because the Bee Gees were so big at that time and frampton was so big at that time it's one of the things where you build people up and then you tear them down mm. so i think that was it was kind of a backlash to that too um but i i found it more fun and you know i, I was expecting it to be like oh my god why am i even watching this and i liked it <laughs> i didn't you know it's not something that i would like rush to watch if i was looking for something to watch immediately but it certainly was pleasant and i can see you especially as a little kid like liking it more because you went in without any expectations whatsoever and yeah musically i think and i guess we'll talk about this more later mm-hmm. but the soundtrack is fantastic i know i have the the soundtrack on vinyl somewhere in my my collection um which i haven't mm-hmm. like gone through in a long time but musically it's great it's just the the film itself narratively i think is kind of a mess but and and i do get what you're what you're saying in terms of expecting more from the music video ship or the or the special effects or um like it's not a grand movie it's really not i mean it's really pretty I, i was thinking when i was watching it i was like you could probably like all these effects are reproducible on your phone at this point. Yeah. <laughs> like you could make this movie on your phone. It's really low tech. And um, it's not Tommy, for example, you know, yeah. like hmm. Tommy has big ideas and it's um, really explosive and, you know, it's really effective and it's scary and it's nightmares. And, you know, this is a really, really, really toned down film compared to something like Tommy. 
which was only that came out in 75 right yeah, yeah. and yeah. that was i mean that influenced me a lot i you know i had known tommy and seen that probably on cable a million times so i think that was part of our our anticipation that we were expecting something more bombastic more ken russell perhaps yes. than what we got so the, yes, this is like a G-rated version of Tommy. I mean, Tommy is something that I saw a lot as a child as well, and which scarred me in all kinds of, you know, terrific <laughs> yeah, ways. Me too, yeah. But like for, for, for me as like a three or four-year-old, Sgt. Pepper was much more in a soft, sweet spot for me than Tommy, which was kind of scary and disturbing. And and I wanted to jump in on that point, point too, because I feel if we're talking about things that are imprinted on you as a child and carrying that nostalgia with you, and then you watch it again later, something like Star Wars, I always point to yes. Star Wars as being, you watch that at a different age, you're gonna have a different experience. That movie does not really hold up too well. I agree. And if you're a kid watching Sgt. Pepper's with fresh eyes, if you're a kid watching Star Wars with fresh eyes, those are going to be two different experiences. I know for a fact that, you know, 40 somethings watching Star Wars in the 70s are probably rolling their eyes at how hokey <laughs> this bear suit and this outer space and all the bad special effects. Just, just, a, a, just jump in and counter that. My dad was probably like pushing 50. He saw Star Wars with me. He passed away three years ago. He loved Star Wars till the day he died. So I don't think that's uh. true of everybody. But, but I, I, in my dad's, you know, in my dad's defense, he actually embraced all the cheesiness and in the yeah, a cynical 40 year old or 50 year old <laughs> right. with uh, watching Star Wars for the first time. Um, but but yeah, I can't get over the initial uh, like clearly there are worse movies than Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. So I don't know for 30 years how that got branded the worst movie of all time. Um, but now I think that people are kind of, you know, given that up a little bit, it could at least have a little bit of room to breathe and be open to a little bit more open-mindedness because it's fun. It's cheesy. It's yeah. campy. It's, you know, a, a big budget, low budget movie. Like the, like you said, the parade, uh, the, <laughs> the, you know, with through town, it looks like a bunch of people with homemade costumes on and stuff. Um, but I think that's part of the charm because there were missteps along the way and you kind of just get to experience it all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to your point about um, like a 40 year old dad's perspective versus a three year old's perspective or whatever, um, we can see that nowadays with I don't know if you guys have kids or around kids or whatever, but um, trying to introduce films to kids nowadays, like a lot of the films that I, you know, try to introduce from the 70s, especially mm -hmm. like the 50s and 40s and even 60s I can kind of get away with but when I try to introduce kids to movies from the 70s a lot of the times they're like oh you know like my my, my friend um she's a film professor and tried to get her students to watch Stanley Kubrick and like you know they're all like oh, boring yeah. I hate this guy yeah you know <laughs> just like well, the, the pacing the pacing of film and the presentation of uh movies is completely different now it, it, absolutely television shows same thing everything's for like even I I am a 40 year old father of two young children I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old and yeah, they're like we watch we'll watch a lot of PBS, a lot of Disney Junior, a lot of uh, Nickelodeon things, and a lot of those shows are ten minutes long now. Yeah. They don't even make half hour shows. <laughs> right, right. Um, but 
a lot of them, like I, we tend to gravitate to ones the, that at least I could tolerate to watch as well. Sure. But yeah, so like, yeah, kids, I, I don't know if I would show my five-year-old Sergeant Pepper. I don't know what to expect if I did that. Um, it'd be, it'd be curious. I should do that. And Hey, can we all hold on for about 90 <laughs> minutes? <laughs> I'll go get his perspective. Like kids yeah, react. I mean, I would think probably under five would be fine. I, it's just older than that. That I think you might get a more skeptical oh, yeah. or more cynical sort of reaction. Yeah, it, And also I will say too, that I have a very high tolerance for movies like this, you know, like I love that, it's made basically as a silent movie. Like, mm. I think that was a stroke of genius. I, I think it's brilliant. Um, it made it extremely easy to follow, you know? So not only for, like, if you're a child, but also if you're tripping balls, you know, you're stoned <laughs> out of your mind. All right, give me 90 minutes. Give me 90 minutes. I'm going to go do that. I, I can actually really? see how, had when we were 15, had we all been stoned and seen this. And actually, we used to go to, like, midnight movie things, so even though we were all pretty straight-laced kids at the time, we go to like midnight rock and roll movies and co weird comedy movies and just contact highs because in those days, in the dark ages, everybody was allowed to smoke in the theaters and people used, yeah, to like, yeah. people used to light up joints and, you know, you'd just like breathe and you'd be like wasted. So maybe that would have made <laughs> the afternoon, you know, like straight-laced viewing that we saw, maybe that would have enhanced it for us back then. Um, it's interesting that uh, you just mentioned the fact that there's no dialogue from the characters apart from uh, George Burns as Mr. Kite. Uh, the story is narrated by him. Um, but a lot of reviews at the time, the Bee Gees acting was criticised. Do you think that's a fair criticism considering that there is no dialogue? <laughs> no, no. No, not at no. all. Yeah, I thought they were great. They were the best part of the film. I think. Yeah, they're they're silent film. Uh, they yeah. their humor mm -hmm. lends itself to silent film. They could have been silent yeah. film stars, especially Morris, the mugs to the camera, mm -hmm. his facial expressions. Like, I definitely think that um, it's it, when they were kids in Australia, they were doing hokey, uh, cheesy mm -hmm. TV like this back then. Like, I think they were perfect in this role. And, you know. I can understand also because you have an entire cast filled with different people from different countries with different accents and you have heartland of America, you know, where's this heartland where everybody has 20 different <laughs> accents that of course you're going to have to do a silent film with that. Um, I do think it was a weird and brave choice. Um, but I don't think the Bee Gees at all, uh, were any of the problem in terms of the acting wise? No, not at all. I think also because the you know the three of them grown up, and I know in uh, interviews, especially these days, Barry has talked about how they were they were practically triplets. Yeah. You can just feel you know you can tell that they they're used to being with each other. They have like their own little language within them, and the chemistry is great. You know they are like a triple act, and they're great in it. Um, and any and I. I had read the notes that you had sent us about it. And I'm totally confused as to why yeah. people thought their acting was bad because it really is just pantomime and, you know, solid right. comedy and they're right at yes. it. I would say their chemistry with Peter Frampton is a lot worse. And I don't blame Frampton either because he didn't know them and they sort of threw them all together and nobody actually gave them time to like gel. <laughs> so he's like yeah. the poor guy is like the odd man out with these people who are supposed to be his best friends. Whereas they're all, they are a self-contained unit. They're great. Yeah, they were. I, I felt that they were no perfect, 
um, like you said, it's pantomime. That's exactly how they're supposed. They're <laughs> silent film actors. Like they have to be over the top. They got to be big. They're doing a lot of pratfalls. Like, what's the criticism of their acting? <laughs> Were they not big? Like if they weren't hammy enough, or what, like? <laughs> Could you imagine them going even bigger? Holy hell! <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. I, that, I, I think it was probably. I think the criticisms were probably more. I don't like that style versus mm-hmm. I don't like how they did it. Right? Because yeah. it's going to have to be. Yeah, because I've seen them act in other things and not be hammy and big and campy. So that's. I don't think. I you know I think they were playing it the way they were told, and I think they were great at it. I agree. Yeah, and is it and and. I was just going to add, uh, we were talking about Peter Frampton being the odd man out. A lot of people at the time or, and since have complained about his casting and whether or not mm. Andy Gibb, the, mm, the, yeah. the Gibb's fourth brother, should have been. Now, he would have been very young yeah. to be that role. But could you imagine Barry maybe sliding into Billy Shears and Andy being part of the Henderson brothers or something like that? How the how the yeah, four of them would have been in this movie? That would have actually been really good. I mean, Andy was about my age. The thing I don't oh, think boy. he could have pulled off the you know the, the Billy Shears role, but he probably could have been one of the three brothers. Um, I was going to say also that Michael Schultz was the director, and I know that he did stuff like Car Wash and a lot of like really goofy like mm-hmm. low budget comedies at that point in time. And I, and those are very cartoony too. So I think he probably, if you look at it, I'm yeah. sure that was part of his direction, and it works. You know in terms of the way they're yeah. all interacting. So I, yeah, I, I think it just, people didn't like that style of comedy at that particular point in time for whatever reason. So, you know, whereas I think cause at that point we, you know, we were, we were dealing with the Saturday night Live era and the, you know, a lot of like Kentucky fried movie mm-hmm. and the groove tube. So it was a lot more, right. you know, sort of edgy comedy and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, yes, you know, uh, bathroom humor and body parts and all that stuff. So this is kind of, too nice, maybe. <laughs> this this movie is not edgy, right? Exactly, no. it is, it is yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's got Steve Martin doing you know murders and uh, or or uh, transformations or whatever he was doing as Doctor Maxwell Silverhammer, and and yet still it can't get edgy. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's basically he's very similar to the character, the dentist that he plays in. Mm-hmm. Um, Little, Little Shop Wars, yeah. I mean, this is like sort of a, uh, an entry level position for him on that. Right. But, yeah. 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 And he was also very. That was, I think, at the time he just had broken through. So that was, you know, the whole King Tut and you know, let's get small era. So he mm-hmm. and I think people were expecting more of that too from this movie because that it was going to be weirder and kind of like you know, way out their humor and it's sweet. It's just not that weird. I, I mean, I thought it for me again. It, it kind of checked all the boxes for me as a three-year-old or whatever like it was weird enough it was creepy enough but like I remember going through a whole range of emotions for me it was very satisfying to me because there were parts that were scary to me Mm. all the Alice Cooper stuff was scary (laughs) still was I watched it this week (laughs) and like that um those Nazi boy scouts though they were fucking freaky I didn't like them Um, the robots were weird the robots uh, I hated that the the, um, the, the oh, vocals yeah. on the robots as a side note the vocals on the robots yeah. killed those songs yeah. I, I i was bummed out by that yeah i didn't mind the mean mr mustard one because it didn't go on too long and it was kind of quirky and okay but mm-hmm. i hated oh, that yeah. when i'm 64 so <laughs> it was awful 
Um, yeah. There's a woman bound and gagged <laughs> for the whole thing, so I, I already don't like it. Like, you can just take that out. As far as I'm that, was, that was my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> well, I think if they were marketing this as sort of family and wholesome, that probably wasn't no. the right thing to be doing there. But, I mean, if you look at it, it was 1978, so you're also coming right off of Star Wars and a lot of stuff. That when everything had to, like, throw science fiction elements and robots into it, that's when you got... Yeah. No, seriously, that's when you got... Um, Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica and a lot of other stuff. And everybody was like, oh my God, we have to put robots and make it science fiction-y because Star Wars sold. So let's like ride that bandwagon. And it was marketed weirdly because like I said, we were teenagers and we thought it was for us and like, I guess, older hipper kids. And it wasn't. I think if it had been marketed more towards family and, and younger kids, it probably would have done a lot better. You know what it actually reminded me a lot of is the monkeys. Yeah. Especially the second, I mean, there's only two seasons of the monkeys, right? And like the the first one is sort of more straightforward, laugh track, you know, sitcom y, whatever. And then the second one is a little more um like alternative. There's a lot of sexy there's a lot of sexiness in the movie and stuff like that. Um Lucy luring away uh Billy Shears and stuff. Yeah. I loved the whole I want you segment. Yeah. Um, how sleazy they they um, portrayed the whole <laughs> music business as. I loved like everybody just coming up and like throwing sex in their face and like champagne and jewels and like it was so over the top like in a really lovely way. Like I, I feel like that it could have been on stage and it would have been exactly the same. Let's talk a bit about the music uh, again, like the film. Reviews of the soundtrack have not been kind. Uh, just a few quotes were an utter travesty, an absolutely atrocious record. And then probably the most scathing of all was Dave Marsh in Rolling Stone. He said two million people bought this album, which proves that P.T. Barnum was right and that euthanasia may have untapped possibilities. Well, Rolling Stone, like, you know, lived to be like, you know, the hippest, you know, cutting edges, like er nothing mainstream was good anymore because they were just they were that edgy and they were that cool. So I I have to discount. I mean, back in the day, we all agreed with them. But now, like in retrospect, no, they were just a bunch of posers. And there were a lot of times where they like attacked stuff that was actually really good because it just didn't fit their aesthetic. And this is why like bands like the Monkees can't get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because Jan Wenner has decided that they are something that they're actually not. Um, but that's a whole nother end yeah. for a whole nother. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just think that, I mean, I, even at the time we were disappointed with the movie, but the soundtrack was great. You know, I remember, you know, come together, um, especially being like huge in the charts. And I think Aerosmith, I, I think that's one of like the best Beatles covers there is. And, you know, I'm not a huge Aerosmith fan, but I like them. And I think that's one of their like, pinnacles and the same thing with earth wind and fires that you got to get you into my life that was also like a really big yeah. top 40 hit so i'm not sure where this oh it's so crap i mean there are some bad takes but there are bad takes on a lot of albums it's not like you know <laughs> everything's got to be like brilliant it's not everything's got to be revolver where it's great from start to finish um mm-hmm. and i think they were i honestly think especially something like rolling stone and the more more alternative presses were looking for something to go after the mm-hmm. bgs and frampton because they were popular sure. they were top 40 they were kind of media darlings so therefore we had to pull them down because they just weren't cool they were you know they were mainstream oh my god yeah i think uh robin's oh darling yes. um yep. was an amazing cover mm-hmm. uh, and um jan you hit it on the head with aerosmith and earth wind and fire i think those are two like they, they those are on par with the beatles originals i think um 
the, you get the other ones that are like the spoken ones, like, you know, with Donald Pleasance and, and, and the robots and, and, uh, some of those obviously are just, you know, filler for the movie. You, you have to do like, nobody wants to yeah. turn on their radio and hear, um, <laughs> fixing a hole by George Burns. Right. Like, but so, but if you take away, if you make Sergeant Peppers a one disc album instead of the two there's there's amazing stuff in there barry's um long and winding road is is great mm-hmm. um i i did read somewhere where um since george martin worked on all of these covers with the acts he had a hand in it and he kept it true closer to the beatles than some other things mm-hmm. like he was there to supervise like Barry said something to the effect of you know not being able to do some of the falsettos or some of the discos that they might have done if George Martin wasn't there uh, so to me that would have been interesting to see how hated it was if Barry's <laughs> singing falsetto and screaming through Sergeant Peppers in his uh, falsetto voice um, but yeah I, I, I think I think the soundtrack is the strength of the movie. Yeah, I, I think that in some ways, I think you're right. If you think about the production, I mean, Martin tried to keep it very traditionally and close to the Beatles. So it would have been interesting to see if they had let, I, I can't even think of who would have been a good uh, producer at that point. We just like to go crazy and let everybody do what they want. And I'm sure that would have been even more reviled because if you suddenly had disco yeah. Beatles or, you know, like weird punk rock Beatles, mm-hmm. people might've freaked out. But like to me, like a lot of the three-part harmonies, I mean, that was something that, the Bee Gees had always done, you know, I said, I grew up on that. So, you know, lonely days, lonely nights, or, you know, mining disaster, just a lot of like three part harmonies because they were known for that. And, and they're beautiful. Yeah. And the Beatles did that too. And I think Martin played to that strength and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it, if anything, it was a little too traditional, but you know, that the, the music yeah. that's actually music and not spoken word or actors that are being forced to like, who are not singers being forced to do things. It's great. You know, it's really beautiful vocals kind of relatedly uh there was a beatles cover album a few years prior called all this in world war ii yep, i've got that also and yeah the, the the bgs did two covers on that album as well Ooh, interesting and um and you know again not falsetto anything like that but there and there's a ton of different artists on that one too elton john uh, a couple other uh they escape me right now why what's the world war ii reference um it's a weird thing where they took the beatles songs and then the film was actually cut it was all like 19 uh world war ii documentary footage and i've never actually seen the film i just have the soundtrack so yeah i got the record as well um (laughs) what wait (laughs) they they did 70s style cover versions but they set it to world war ii footage yes world war ii newsreel footage um and and why it was just a weird experiment by uh I guess I'm looking at the director is Susan Winslow and I have no idea what else she did, but yeah, that, it was just this weird juxtaposition of like the music and the film. And I never got to see the film. I bought the, I wanted, I think I bought the film of uh, the soundtrack at, you know, like cut out records or, you know, some like used record store or something for cheap, but it's interesting. Like I said, there's some really good stuff on there and there's some really weird stuff. It, it comes with, it comes with a cool booklet too, and has really cool art inside and little blurbs and things like that. Um, which is which is kind of neat. So if you yeah if you like Sergeant Pepper, you'll love all this World War Two. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't know about that. <laughs> I just pulled it up on, on Wikipedia, and it says the film features clips from the Nazi Germany 
Army newsreels, various films from 20th Century Fox and other studios featuring Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, Milton Berle, Humphrey oh Bogart, Richard Burton, Neville this Chamberlain, Dwight Eisenhower, Clark Abel, Adolf Hitler, Bob Hope, Joseph P. Kennedy, Laurel and Hardy, James Mason, Benito Mussolini, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Joseph Stalin, and James Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> a cast of thousands. <laughs> it's 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 the edgy Sergeant Pepper that we wanted. Yeah, Dear. I think so. Okay. Yeah, and like I said, I've never seen the film, so I cannot tell you what the visuals to the music, how, whether it works or not. But the soundtrack itself is actually pretty cool. So, and there's you know, yeah. one weird thing that I don't see a lot of people talking about, and I'm really just kind of articulating now in my brain, is that like they did seem like there was a weird World War II nostalgia in the seventies, like. The way kind of like in the 80s, the baby boomers all started to like process Vietnam and make all their Vietnam movies and stuff like that. There's like sort of a weird. Are you getting that as well? I mean, this this film certainly speaks to yeah, it. I, and- I, it's interesting because at the time, the big thing for me, I, I just remember a lot of 50s nostalgia because that's when American Graffiti came out, yes. followed yes, yes. by um, Happy Days and all that. I mean, my junior yeah, high school yeah. and high school proms were both 50s themed, um, you know, because it was all like mid 70s to late 70s um i think there was a little bit of world war ii too and i think more so in the uk i mean even in the eight yeah my best friend at the yeah. time was joking that it seemed like the brits could never let go of world war ii <laughs> yeah everything well, tied back to sense. world war ii i don't think yeah. as much in the states because we did it didn't affect us as much so right yeah there's a 20 year cycle in pop culture yeah so, you know, the stuff that we grew up watching as kids, when we come to the age of being the ones making it, lean on those things that influenced us then. So in, this, in the 90s, for me growing up, I experienced the disco uh, comeback because right, that was yeah. from the 70s. So like that's like it's fascinating to see. I also I'm a huge pro wrestling fan as well. So it's interesting to see the generations of pro wrestlers and fans that go through because like in the 80s it was hulk hogan and you know cartoony pop culture mtv type stuff and then as wrestling fans aged wrestling itself aged and it became more edgy and it became stone cold and the rock and all the blood and all this all this other stuff and um it was that kind of aged as well so if you watch pop culture or even just bgs beatles beatles were huge in the 90s because you know they they had all their thing as well it's 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 fascinating to see what the next trend that comes back is going to be um yeah. can i talk about the soundtrack for just a just a moment of course just gonna get my <laughs> my two cents in here um i overall thought it was good as well and um sarah as i i mentioned to you when we were talking before um my sister had the soundtrack album, and so that was one of the albums that I had. It was, I think she like gave it to me. And so, so it was probably one of the first albums that I technically owned um, as a little kid. So um, and I don't think that I knew. I kind of knew that the Beatles were a thing, but I didn't know the Beatles music. So it wasn't, to me, it wasn't, like I was hearing versions of Beatles songs. Mm. These were just the songs. These were the first um, versions of these songs that I'd ever heard. Because, you know, at the early 80s, you didn't hear the Beatles on the radio. They, it's not like they played Strawberry Fields every day or whatever. So I learned a lot of the Beatles music through this movie. And I generally, I think they were pretty good when I'm watching the movie 
I enjoyed them all. I don't know that I would play the album independent from watching the movie. Um, but some of the some of the numbers were really good. Like you guys said, um, Earth, Wind and Fire, that is the one song that I know outside of that soundtrack that I know really well. So that was like kind of the one thing that took me out of the movie when I was watching it. But that George Burns <laughs> version of fixing a hole, like that was that was really weird. Um, in a kind of like like I was kind of possessed by it. Like it was it's kind of like attractive to me in a weird way. It's like a William Shatner doing you know whatever. He did a great cover of Lucy a- in the Sky with Diamonds. Let me tell you. Um. <laughs> yes, Diane Steinberg, Lewis, and Stargard. I liked that one a lot too. Yeah. It was a little bit long, but I enjoyed it. Um, I've got to disagree with you guys on Come Together, though. I think that one was really meh for me. Like, that was the most kind of uninspired cover oh, wow. of the whole soundtrack. And I'm a kind of um, not really passionate about Aerosmith one way or the other. I'm, you know, they're kind of hit or miss for me. Some songs I really like, some I don't care for, or whatever. Um, but that one is just flat, fell flat for me. See, I think like like Earth, Wind & Fire is for you. Um, I think I knew of the Aerosmith Come Together before I saw the movie. Oh, uh, there you go. So that that's that's interesting. I mean, for me, Come Together is so like the song revolves around the baseline for me, and the baseline is just buried in the Aerosmith song. So it's not it's sort of what appealing what's appealing about the song isn't really even in the Aerosmith version. So I don't know. It loses a lot for me. But but yeah. like I said, that Maxwell number i thought was brilliant i thought casting maxwell as a plastic (laughs) surgeon was fucking genius yeah absolutely got the spirit of that song in a way that i've never Mm -hmm. seen anybody get it perfect um and i love their cover of i want you that's that also is like a beatles one of my you know most beloved best beatles favorites but I also really liked their version of it. I just thought they did a great job. I loved everybody chiming in, <laughs> doing their own shady shit on it. Um, I loved the tape hiss at the end. Like I thought they pulled it off well. And then, and I liked um, Get Back at the end. The one thing I did not like of the Bee Gees was their cover of A Day in the Life. Really? <laughs> that was huh. pretty terrible. Yeah. yeah, that's the one thing I think they butchered. But otherwise, they did pretty good. Like you said... Um, Oh, Darling was beautiful yeah. and Long and Winding Road was 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 lovely. You know, I didn't really have any complaints about their other covers. Yeah, I think the f- the first song that I heard from the soundtrack was Alice Cooper and the Bee Gees doing Because. Because um, mm-hmm. mm. that, that was on the Life and Crimes of Alice Cooper box set. So that was the first time I heard it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> that's That's another one that is very different than the original. Um, and, yes. And- it's, see, like whenever I listen to Bee Gees covers, um, kind of like, you know, this is a movie of Beatles covers. Um, I love hearing different interpretations and, you know, different styles, mm. different genres, different things, um, because to me, that's interesting. If I wanted to hear a carbon copy of a song, you know, I'll just yeah. listen to the original, like yeah. it, do something new with it and that alice cooper like that's not one of my favorites off of it weirdly enough (laughs) but um but i i appreciate the creativity and the attempt yeah i think he said too that george martin actually wanted him to perform the song like that he was just gonna try and do a straight sort of cover of it but 
Yeah, that, that's what he claims anyway. He said, lean into the cartoon evil. Yeah. <laughs> I think he said something which like, you're weird. Alice Cooper, be Alice Cooper, don't, you know, be yeah. the Beatles, which makes sense. Because, I mean, especially, yeah. you know, Alice was at the height of his, like, fame then, too. Something that is interesting from a movie standpoint, from a, a narrative standpoint, uh, I always thought it was interesting that um, Alice Cooper was the sun god. Father son. Um, father son. And he was so creepy and dark and evil. But Aerosmith was the big baddie at the end. Yeah. yeah. Like stylistically, that number with Alice Cooper. Now, I know he was like in the back, you know, Wizard of Oz type thing. He's really doing <laughs> pulling the strings or whatever. Pie in the face. That was, in terms of like a bad guy, that was always, to me, bigger than what Aerosmith was. Because Aerosmith, yeah. they just played a song and then fell off a high uh, <laughs> high platform or something. It was like, oh, yeah. that wasn't as big as this floating head creepily singing and all that they squandered they squandered a great character in father son like yeah uh-huh. they really should have had him come back and do some nastiness yeah the, the aerosmith band is is just like you know they're like the band in um <laughs> and like Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas or whatever, <laughs> they're like the be- like the evil Muppet band that they're competing against or something. They're just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, I, I mean that's like when we talk about the narrativeness. You know, a lot of the story beats are just like kind of ignored. So you get they're just kind of shoved in, and suddenly they're the bad guys. And you know, they're evil because they're evil. We don't actually get any setup as to why or what they're doing. And then of course they they die real quick. So um, <laughs> it, it, you know, it. I think you know narratively, I think there could have been. There could have been a lot more that went on with this film, but I, from what I can tell, they did a lot of this on the cheap and on the fly, so they didn't have a lot of time to sit down and actually construct a decent story. They were just kind of going for, you know, Beatles music, big name acts that were hot at the time, and, you know, let's go and see what happens with this. And also, I mean, there is something to be said for not overdoing the plot. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we kind of know what's going to happen at the end. It's like it didn't really subvert any expectations, of, you know. Yeah, you're 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 barely able to link together songs based on song titles or or you know a couple yeah. of words in a song. Uh, so they did they did decently. If it's okay, I want to tell a story about yeah, uh, sure. Diane Steinberg Lewis. Um, I had a chance to interview her for my um, BGS and Me YouTube channel and podcast. This was a couple months ago, so I went through like two or three weeks of just reading as much as I can about the movie and and looking stuff up and watching the movie over and over again. And she was an amazing person to talk to. She was so sweet and so great and so awesome. But one of the things that stood out to me in the movie was part of that I want you package, the sleazy package of them coming into Hollywood with uh, getting lured by the record label is when the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton are picked up at the airport. They're riding in that limousine and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, or Lucy and the Diamonds, come riding up on their motorcycles. And the band, you know, the, the Bee Gees and, the, and, and Peter Frampton, like, go goo-goo-gaga over them. Yeah. And, like, if, if they were cartoons, they'd have the big eyes, oh, like, oh, yeah. yeah. um, But I noticed that, sh- so Lucy is riding on the back of a motorcycle as it pulls up alongside this convertible limousine, Robin reaches out to her like, oh, my God. And she grabs his hand and sucks on his <laughs> finger. 
and then they drive away. The motorcycle <laughs> speeds up and rides away. And I was blown away because they're moving at a decent clip. They got a, 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 a truck with a, a, a camera parallel along with them going down this highway, which, you know, obviously had to be locked down. But I've never sat on the back of a motorcycle and had somebody <laughs> suck on my finger. But you I haven't lived. <laughs> Uh, but I can only imagine that that was kind of <laughs> dangerous. Like you sh shouldn't interact with two different things speeding down a highway and reach across and 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 pull and like one speed bump or one little thing or pulling like that to me was. And I asked her about it and she was like, yeah, we just did it. Like and she I think she almost inferred to the uh, to the th to thing like that wasn't even in the script. Like she kind of improvised that or something like that. And um, that was baffling to me that a major Hollywood picture would ha have their superstars have Robin Gibb, one third of the largest comedy or largest musical act in the country, reach out of a thing at a moving motorcycle threatened to be pulled out. Like that, that was kind of baller. That did that turn into a PSA at the end of like, don't give or receive blowjobs while you're driving, kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's very dangerous. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, for the rest of the movie, Robin will be played by <laughs> No Fingers Jones. Yeah, yeah. Um, R.I.P. Robin. Yeah. Then Morris has to play both roles because Robin's, you know, otherwise, yeah, disposed of this. <laughs> He's, <laughs> yeah, he's in full traction. He's somewhere in a, a hospital bed. Morris would do it, right? Doesn't he get like he gets a pie in the face at one point? Does he get the pie in the face in the father? I table? thought it, I thought it was him. That's what my nose said. I might be wrong. And he's like falling off. The, he did the yeah. best Pratt falls, as far as I'm concerned. Didn't he like fall off the back of his chair? And... Yeah, he 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 also yeah. did this. Morris is a great great physical comedian he did a look to the camera and like raised his eyebrows at one point uh, <laughs> that was so great it, it gets me a laugh every time and then uh similarly in the in the limousine scene where um it was the i want you uh diane steinberg lewis plays the limo driver and lucy and all those other things and then uh her sidekick in the movie is uh is uh, he plays billy Shears's little brother dougie oh yeah yeah um, and when he Paul Nichols, yes. Uh, he starts singing, I want you to Lucy. And she kind of gives him the side eye and like the camera pans over out of nowhere. In terms of comedy, that was that was perfectly executed. My other favorite moment was when they were all hugging at the end of something and George Burns is like, everybody was happy. <laughs> everybody hugged and kissed, except and he's Robin goes to Barry. He's like, get the fuck off me. I'm going to hug you. <laughs> that made me laugh oh god <laughs> uh just yeah just getting back to the soundtrack for a second i i also thought morris's voice was really well suited to uh being for the benefit of mr kite which you know i guess isn't surprising really because he did channel his inner john lennon on a song called have you heard the word from 1970 and it actually sounded so much like john that people actually thought it was a Lost Beatles track. And then in 1985, Yoko Ono tried to register it as a John Lennon composition, even though when he was alive, John himself denied any involvement <laughs> in the song. So 
<laughs> oh, that's a special story. Yeah, I actually never. I'm going to have to look to, up the song because I've actually, all my years of Beatles fan, I've never heard the story or heard the song as far as I know. So it is, it does sound very like I would have thought it was John Lennon if I didn't know the background. I will have to pull it up. Yeah, it's it's on yeah, YouTube. Uh, uh, Morris, Morris, I think, was criminally underrated and underrepresented in a lot of the Beatles, or I'm sorry, the Bee Gees things. Also the Beatles things. I think he could have done a lot more on the Beatles tracks. <laughs> no, but um, some of his, some of his uh, songs, like towards the end of the Bee Gees run, he would get one or two songs per album. And some of those, I think, are standout because uh he's 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 fantastic and and he was really the driving force be behind a lot of the uh instrumentalists yeah. and uh, the instrumentals and the technology and and uh some of the progressive sounds and and uh and of course we saw when he passed away tragically in 2003 um it it sunk the Bee Gees as you know as the Bee Gees Barry and Robin continued along but they couldn't work together anymore right Morris really held that group together yeah well, there was a lot of discussion yeah. about that in the uh the Bee Gees documentary which I I did actually catch and it was I thought it was beautifully done um but it, it was very it made me very emotional because you know the fact that I you know not knowing that Robin and, and Barry didn't actually get along and Morris actually was always the bridge between them was mm -hmm. fascinating because you know Growing up, you always thought they were all just pals and they all got along and it was just one big happy family. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like, obviously, I think, you know, they had their good times and, and uh, like, I think creatively they worked together. If from this is just from observations, I have no inside knowledge or anything like that. But I think creatively they got along really well. Brotherly, they didn't know how. Like, I think, mm. I think it was like that type of partnership uh, where, you know, it, it, they were able to create amazing music together. Um, but then, you know, once you leave the studio, it's like, oh, how are you, brother? Yeah, well, yeah it's and I think Barry and Robin were so different in yeah. terms of personalities. Yeah. And Morris was yeah. kind of the guy who was easy to get along with for everybody, really. Yeah. That's hard. That's a, you know, it's a lot to balance yeah yeah it's hard i mean it's hard enough when you're working creatively with somebody you know there's a lot you have to manage you know hurt feelings and egos and um everybody's will and everybody's creative vision and that's just a lot on i mean forget having a personal relationship outside of that that's hard right. enough if you do it and shake hands and leave and never talk to each other you know <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and the fact that they were able to do a you know a fifty three year career or whatever they had and yeah. tw twenty two studio albums like th that just speaks to the testament of how well they were able to coexist. Yeah, definitely. So, I guess let's talk a little bit about how uh, Sgt. Pepper was perceived by the Beatles themselves, and also what the Bee Gees thought about it after the fact. So, like, I couldn't find any real comments from John or Ringo about the movie. I don't know if anyone else has ever come across any. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Paul said once that he hadn't seen the movie at all. Not sure if that's changed, but George Harrison said he felt sorry for the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton because he thought that it damaged their careers and he said it was like the Beatles trying to do the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones can do it better. 
And there's a lot of contemporary reviews which actually also state that it damaged the Bee Gees' careers. But like, there's kind of there's a lot of evidence to the contrary in a way. I mean, they followed up Sgt. Pepper with the Spirits Having Flown album, which gave them three US number one singles: "Too Much Heaven," "Tragedy," and "Love You Inside Out." And two of those songs were written during an afternoon off from making Sgt. Pepper. And another track written that same day, uh, Shadow Dancing, became a number one hit for their brother, Andy. So, yeah, I don't know. David, What's what are your thoughts on, on that? Did it have a hand in damaging their careers at all? I think it killed their movie career. <laughs> I don't think it hurt them musically. Yeah. I think it hurt Peter Frampton's career. I think he has said mm. that it hurt him. Uh, he kind of, as the lead, kind of got the brunt, and 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 he didn't. He wasn't as uh, comedic, and and he didn't pull that off as well. I think some of his stuff was a little corny. Um, so I think he probably suffered most. I think um, the actresses that played Strawberry Fields and uh, Lucy. Um, with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, I think it killed their careers because uh, neither of them went along to do more movies. Um, they did music, obviously. Um, but, um, but you know, the cameos. I think Steve Martin, we never heard from that guy again. <laughs> yeah, what a flop. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame he was, a, he was an up-and-comer. Um, but no, I think, yeah, Peter Frampton, I think, got it the worst. The Bee Gees might have had a hiccup. I think, you know, three or four years down the line whenever the disco backlash was full in full effect it was easy to point to um sergeant pepper as a misstep but at the time it wasn't so i think if the i think more than anything the the um the the homophobia and the racism of the disco backlash oh definitely was able to was able to bring in uh sergeant pepper as as part of that um but I don't think at the time, of course, I wasn't there at the time. Um, Jan, you might be able to speak yeah, I, I better was, to it. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, honestly, I don't think it hurt the Bee Gees career at all, except, as you said, the movie career, because they never really acted again. Um, I was actually, it's funny because I was in New York, but I went to college in Chicago. So I was in Chicago around 1979 and then started college in 1980, which was when that whole backlash. And Steve Dahl, who was this absolutely aberrant um, radio Water. DJ, was the one who did that whole death to disco and blowing up the records in the middle of the, the uh, uh, baseball field, uh, Comiskey Park and this and that. Um, and a lot more of it was homophobia, racism, and just BS. And honestly, um, Sergeant Pepper was never mentioned. It really was the big Saturday Night Fever focus, you know, that soundtrack, the stuff they did later because it was all disco and we all know disco sucks. Um, and it, and it was much more of that. I, and Frampton wasn't a disco um, artist at all. He was a rock artist. You know, Frampton Comes Alive mm -hmm. was this huge thing. Part of it was actually recorded at a stadium near my house, which now no longer exists and is now a parking lot with a target in it. Um, but at the time, it was the Comac Arena. And, um, you know, Frampton, it was just, I think musically, he kind of like had this like anomalous pop hit, a rock hit, and then it kind of like, petered out and i don't think it was the movie the movie didn't help but i think musically he just kind of didn't get that spark it was just 
kind of a yeah. one hit wonder. And it's a shame because he's a brilliant guitarist. Um, and he's a, he was a very good friend of David Bowie. He was on the uh, glass spider tour and he was phenomenal. Cause I, I saw that tour several times, uh, several stops on that tour. And um, he lives in Nashville now. And a friend of mine actually, who's a Nashville artist, um, musician and uh, doing a weird Beatles cover uh project right now knows him um he's at one point my friend was also an accountant and <laughs> peter frampton was actually one of his clients and he just has nothing you know he only can praise peter and says he's a great great guy but nice. is peter just chilling in nashville now? yeah he's just chilling in nashville i think he's just kind of doing music when he feels like it i and yeah. i think he's kind of happy that there's no you know he's not like chasing that yeah. needs to be a star kind of thing he gets residuals from his money he gets residuals from probably the stuff sure. he's done in the studio and he's He's fine with that. You know, the stardom thing, I don't think was something he really wanted or needed. Um, and yeah, I'm just looking at the, the, the cast list also. It's very funny because Carol Stryken, who played Brute in it, actually his career, I don't think this created his career, but he went on to do Star Trek The Next Generation. He was in Twin Peaks and a bunch of other things. He's the big, like seven foot tall guy. And I was kind of laughing because obviously when I first saw the movie, I had no idea who he was. And then I'm suddenly like, oh, look, there's Mr. Hum from Star Trek The Next Generation. He was like a regular character. So <laughs> not everybody's career tank, but. Donald, Donald Pleasance, I had no clue that he was the Blofeld, uh, doctor yeah. from, from, um, James from James Bond. Yeah, Blofeld. Like, like that literally only when I did my research earlier this year for my my interview did I did I like come across that and I was like what like he did a really good job in that role of disguising himself in both roles he's a great character actor then yeah he's he's somebody who showed up in a lot of stuff I, if I remember correctly he was in some other like b-level horror movies for especially like UK stuff at the time he was just known as you know coming in and, and doing his thing and getting the money for it and leaving again so but he's a brilliant actor um oh my god i didn't even realize that he was the record manager oh my god he did an amazing job <laughs> right <laughs> like, what role was where was donald pleasance did i miss him i'm like oh shit yeah. <laughs> wow he really did he really did a good job yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. the interesting they thing is um, paul nichols who played dougie i mean he was like a one-hit wonder he did a song called heaven on the seventh floor um, and I think he had a couple of other hits in the UK, but he's somebody, because I looked up his whole career um, doing this, he's somebody in the UK who's actually been known for years. He was like a 60s pop artist mm -hmm. and then had a couple of hits in the 70s, and he's done a lot of musical theater and TV stuff since then. So he's, yeah. he's just one of these guys who's like a jobbing actor and musician the whole time. Yeah, guys, I have to agree that I really think the weak link, I hate to say it, was Peter Frampton. I mean... Mm -hmm. I don't think he was an especially good actor, which I'm sure that probably doesn't upset him to hear. Like, I'm sure he's like, well, I wasn't an actor. Um, but I didn't feel like his vocal performances were that great either. I mean, sorry, no disrespect, but I just, just wasn't super impressed by most of his. He had a, as the lead of that movie, he had a huge weight on his shoulders. And yeah. that, um, I think I think as a whole, all the cameos, all the special people in there, all the things that lifts it up. Um, and yeah, I would have liked more from Billy Shears, but you know, it is what it is. Um, Peter Frampton did finally he for years and years and years he didn't even address Sergeant Pepper, um, but his autobiography came out uh, probably within this past year. 
and he finally had some things when he first when he first uh signed up and agreed to be in it he thought that the beatles were involved he thought that paul mccartney was going to be in the movie too oh no so he talks about how he was bummed out to find out that he wasn't um he 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 regrets doing the movie he feels like bad and like he thinks it did hurt him a little bit and whatever and to a degree like we said it had to have um but what I, uh, he, he says he finally made peace with the experience yeah. and what helped him get over it was his role in the movie Almost Famous, oh, right. oh, which great. was a Cameron Crowe film about that Stillwater band. And he played, you know, a, a, I think a record executive or something. And he feels that helping with Almost Famous, helping, because he helped behind the scenes get that band, those actors to be Stillwater. And he felt that the contributions that he made to that movie counterbalanced Indeed. his react, yeah, oh. his, 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 his contribution to Hollywood. So um, I guess he's kind of at peace with it now, which is good. Yeah, I, I always got the feeling at the time that it was one of those like managerial, you know, oh, you know, you're on this like upward trajectory. You're this huge, you know, rock star. Do this. It'll only make it better for you. It was like, you know, managers, agents, whatever, people pushing him to do it. As you said, mm-hmm. which I didn't know that he thought the Beatles were involved. So that seemed like a smart idea. And then just suddenly, you know, it just completely was the wrong, the wrong advice and the wrong step to go and. It, it went nowhere but i don't think anybody knew i remember like at the time i remember like all the press and kind of like the buzz about it before it came out and it sounded like it was going to be a really good project i mean everyone was really excited about it and then it like completely blew up on itself so i, I can understand him like making these choices or being pushed to make this choice at the time because yeah. it seemed like you know that was what was going on in terms of people doing these crazy things you know ringo did you know, TV series, you you know, there was all sorts of like weird stuff that people were involved with. It's multimedia because the, the options were different then. You didn't have as much, you know, easily accessible content at that point. So you sort of had to find your audience in different ways. So, well, and I also will say, though, that um, that, that wasn't necessarily terrible advice because, you know, fame is fleeting yeah. and, you know, careers are very short. Mm-hmm. the vast majority of them. So it's not a terrible idea to strike while the iron is hot and not for nothing, but we're talking about Peter Frampton now, like yeah. what, 43 years later or whatever, you know, whatever it is. So he, we are still talking about it. Like it did make a mark and what's the alternative? Like we're talking about, did it kill his career? But like, did it kill his career? Was it just, did it just coincide with the end of his career? You know, yeah, what I, mean? I think it was a little bit of both because I just think like musically he kind of had peaked because he'd been around and he was in like humble pie and other bands for years. And they kind of had, you know, a few hits and they were known, but they weren't huge. And then friend comes alive for some reason that just hit at the right time and went, you know, completely crazy. And, and he is still remembered mostly for Frampton comes alive. Yeah. I think. Yeah. It was actually his association with the Bee Gees um, that actually led Peter Frampton to playing lead guitar on the song Grease for the movie. Barry had written that song and he asked him to play on it. So I didn't know this till recently, but yeah. I didn't even know he played on it. And he's probably still making money from that. Oh yeah, that was a huge seller, so. Uh, Something that I found fun that we touched upon just just now um, is having the perspective of expectations 
right before the movie came out. I have the Rolling Stone magazine that the uh, Bee Gees and Peter Frampton are on the cover as the Sgt. Pepper's characters. It's a drawn cover. And I read that article and it was written right before the movie came out and it was talking about how huge this movie was going to be yeah. and it was going to be great. Um, I have you know, the, the uh, press material book that came out with it. Uh, I have the novelization and the novelization actually, so, uh, another side note, has dialogue in it, which is weird. Um, and then just this week, I got a book that was written about the Bee Gees and it referenced Sergeant Pepper. And I'm trying to think, because it, it, it's, you know, this really, it's, uh, I think, a school book that was written. It's 32 pages long. It's not really too long or anything like that, but it talks about how the Bee Gees, how huge the Bee Gees are. And it's uh, very, very quickly and poorly written. But it talks <laughs> about Sgt. Pepper and it says, quote, as soon as it was released, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was a box office success everywhere. <laughs> with, <laughs> with the Saturday Night Fever album still breaking records, the Bee Gees were now at the top of both the music and film industries, the country was red hot with Bee Gees fever. So when that paragraph was written for this book, I don't know if the movie was out yet because oh, yeah. none of that happened yeah. or they just kind of wanted to have revisionist history. Yeah, that, that to me smells like, you know, just publicists like pushing tears <laughs> before it came out. Plus like, back in, yeah. I, mean, I remember as a kid, like they were constantly like putting out these, you know, these like, really cheap, fast, get them out when this project is happening. So we'll make money off the project books or, and or magazines. So that it just like, right. smells of that particular kind of marketing. Um, because they thought it was going to be huge. And like I said, I remember at the time, we all thought it was going to be this big, huge deal because there, everyone was kind of riding this like weird wave of second wave Beatlemania. And it seemed like everything they touched, you know, even like something like Beatlemania on Broadway, which eventually got shut down and there were lawsuits. But the show was really good because it was basically, you know, two-hour tribute band production um so everybody thought this film especially with the Bee Gees, who were like probably the biggest act in the world at the time um and it, it made sense yeah it, it all sounded if you look at it on paper it should have really been like this great thing yeah. and unfortunately and and i think that leads to, uh, uh, and only adds to why it was held for so long as the worst movie of all time because those expectations were huge yeah. and mm -hmm. and now if you see it without those expectations i think it holds up as just a kind of campy fun bad yeah. movie as opposed to the worst ever. Yeah, it's yeah. not bad enough or good enough to really be a cult classic but having rewatched right. it again I, I was like i don't remember like why was this so savage it's not great yeah. but it's, it's not nearly as i mean i i like you know schlocky movies and stuff too but this is not bad i have seen seriously bad stuff and this is just it's there it's fun you know it's got some bright moments and there's nothing really wrong with it it just isn't great was it a um, box office success? Yeah, Wikipedia says at the bottom, it says the film was a minor commercial success, earning $20.4 million against the production budget of $13 million. I mean, and also, remember, this is 1978 money, so $20.4 million, you know, sounds low now as compared to, like, you know, Black Widow just opened and is making something like <laughs> $110 million in three days. But for 1978, that's actually decent money so yeah it, it didn't lose money so it wasn't as bad as people thought either 
Man, there was probably just yeah. at least 1.2 million of Coke on set oh, at all times. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Not to mention the champagne, the hookers, and <laughs> God only knows what else. And then the rest is music clearance. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> What's the budget? Hey, we, didn't leave, <laughs> we didn't leave any budget for these clown costumes. Oh, just let them dress up themselves. <laughs> Can I just say, like, my favorite part might be at the end of the movie where they just, like, invite everybody who was on the lot that day to just come and flood the bleachers and just stand there and sing. Like, what was that? Yeah, that, that, seems, that was so 70s. It, it was, it was like, kind of, like, so mind-blowing, too, to see. Like, it was, like, Tina Turner and um, Rita Moreno and I forgot. There was somebody else, like, well, a Carol, Donovan? Ch- Carol Channing all together. And, and Alan Reddy, like, like all in a cluster. And it was, like... Okay, this is like, there's some really good people here. Like, I'm looking at the, the cast list on, on Wikipedia. It's like, you know, Gwen Verdon, Tina Turner, you know, Frankie Valley. I caught also, you know, Helen Reddy. Like, all these, like, really big people at the time. For sure. Um, Hank Williams Jr.? What? Grover Washington Jr.? Yeah. What? Why? <laughs> like, I guess people just make calls bruce johnson from the beach boys etta james is on there yeah in the novelization of this um movie um one two three four five six pages of a paperback book are spent on listing the people (laughs) that are in that scene (laughs) there are not that many people so like some of the people listed in here are like reaches they did not get any of these like celebrities that they wanted in there um but it's funny to see how many how many people and who they wanted to get there and and i didn't even realize till i read this or read it in something else that that was an attempt at recreating the cover of sergeant pepper oh man yeah Yeah, that makes sense yeah i did get that and to me it was there were no costumes there was like (laughs) like it was just to me i thought it was just people on a on risers singing uh but it's like oh this is supposed to be the cover well that's weak well it reads more like a high school auditorium yeah it definitely just feels like chorus it's also sort of like you know the precursor to stuff like we are the world or you know did the next christmas let's just get everybody and anybody we can drag off the street to come in and you know show their face and it's good for good promotion for them you know uh yeah, it's a, uh, suddenly there they are in their imaginations. They are all rock stars who have made great music. Stars like Stevie Wonder, The Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin, yeah. Aretha Franklin, Elton John, David Bowie, Diana Ross, Fleetwood Mac, The Average White Band. It goes on like that for oh. six pages. Oh my god! Uh. <laughs> oh god, that's amazing. <laughs> Instead, we got Shauna Na and Seals and Croft and (laughs) Peter Noon from uh, Herman's Hermits. And I love Peter Noon, so I'm not dissing him. Mark Lindsay, who is uh, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. I'm just looking at the... And Edda James. And then again, Dame Edna Everidge. I mean, Dame Dame Edna was everywhere around then. So, but it's just like, yeah, they're they're definitely in the same, you know, stratosphere as Led Zeppelin in 1978. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was some real Hollywood nonsense. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's been well documented that the Bee Gees were not happy with the whole experience. And I was talking to various people about this recently, and quite a few people pointed out that the recent HBO documentary made like almost no mention of Sgt. Pepper. Um, but it was mentioned in an earlier documentary uh, from 1997 called Keppel Road, The Life and Music of the Bee Gees. And yeah, basically... 
Robin says it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience. Uh, nobody really knew where they were going with it. And then Morris just flat out says it was a terrible film. Um, and he pretty much says the best thing about it was getting to work with George Martin. Um, and I think that that was probably one of the main reasons. I mean, it, it was a contractual obligation, but I think they, you know, especially Morris, like he never made any secret of the fact that he was a huge Beatles fan. So I think that was definitely one of the biggest attractions for them. Um, and although George Martin apparently wasn't a fan of the movie himself, he he had a lot of respect for the Bee Gees and he spoke, he's in that documentary and he speaks very highly of them and working with them. So I, th- I think that might be a little revisionist in terms of their opinions. Yeah. I think maybe the 20 years of being told over and over again that that was a horrible movie, they're like, yeah, you're right. It was a mistake. But from what I could see on film and what they said in interviews at the time, it seemed like they had a fun time doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. One of the things doing sort of research before the scene, like Robin's, was it Robin's uh, commentary about how they're going to be so big and this is going to be <laughs> yes. so great and nobody's even going to remember the Beatles? Like, that's a little bit of hubris <laughs> there, um, to say the least, to be, to be kind about it. Um, I mean, even if it had been a huge hit, I don't think people would have forgotten the Beatles. <laughs> No, <laughs> despite all that sorry dear um and it's and it's a silly thing to say because it's not like the bgs weren't a huge band and didn't have their own success to like suddenly like have to trash somebody you know especially when they were using all their music for their movie it was just like a really odd <laughs> thing to come out with and yeah you know beyond the scope of of egotism um on the other hand like you know i'm one of the biggest george harrison fans there are and reading you know george's like commentary about it. I know what he was trying to say and wanting them to do their own thing rather than relying on the Beatles, but George tended to be grumpy about anybody like touching the Beatles legacy. He didn't even want to touch it himself. So I think that on the opposite side of the coin was probably, you know, like not what he needed to say about it, but nobody else, none yeah. of the other Beatles said anything, which is surprising, you know, especially when John was actually friendly, I guess, uh, with Morris and um, Ringo was also. So you would have thought. I agree. Say. That was uncharitable on George's part. And- George, um, you know, I, I love George to death, but, you know, Grumpy was, you know, his middle name. Yeah, that's his MO. Yeah. <laughs> He's a Pisces, I'm a Pisces, I get it. Pisces can be grumpy people. <laughs> I, I, I would I would have loved to have seen a video of Robin uh, saying that quote. Yeah. Because part of me knowing how just, I mean, sure, Robin is definitely ego, like his ego and, and, and he'll say brash stuff. But I, I almost believe that he kind of said that uh, like sarcastically almost a little bit yeah mm-hmm. um because he's you know there's video of him all over saying out- outrageous funny crazy stuff like um uh, especially with like well documented he was on howard stern when the bgs were on howard stern and he said all this stuff just to just to try to keep up with the shock jock you know yeah yeah um, so he could have just so- been winding people up the, the, yeah, like I love it. I think it's great. When I read that, I laughed. I laughed. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. And he's just like, you know what? It'll be like as if the Sergeant Pepper never existed. What a like <laughs> crazy thing to say. That's right? amazing. Yeah. So that's and also people. People are so ugh, so defensive about the Beatles. A lot of the problem is you, we don't know the intonation. You know, unless you actually. Mm, hear right. it. I mean, he could have been completely like laughing his ass off and you know being a smart ass on purpose, or he could have been serious. You don't know. 
Unfortunately, that John quote, wants him to Beatles were bigger than Jesus, and like we're getting upset because Robin's like, "Our Sergeant Pepper is better than theirs," and people yeah. get really like, "You're really getting upset about that." How dare he? How dare he say that? Yeah, I wasn't offended. I just was like, "Okay, this is going to bite you in the ass," you know? Yeah, because you know, people yeah. are going to get offended. Yeah, people are, are going to get offended about by it. But who knows? He might have said it just to like you know, kind of you know, take the Mickey out of it. You don't know. Sure. Yeah. They need it too because people are too reverential about the Beatles. Yes, absolutely. Like it's yeah. it's over the top. As a, the as a hardcore Beatles fan, I agree with you completely. <laughs> it's like they were still human beings. They still, you know, they had good times and bad times. They were not gods. Stop it. <laughs> and um, by the way, other people have made good albums yes. too. They're like there's not no, that's not possible. Album. There's only one rock band that ever existed. Everybody else is just a poser. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I mean, Robin's quote is like, it's on Wikipedia. It's pretty much everywhere you look about the movie. But uh, <laughs> I found, I was on, I just stumbled upon this forum and the anger and like, <laughs> from, from Beatles fans. <laughs> and one, one guy just said like, you know, could he have been under the influence at the time of making this comment? And, you know, that's, could be. <laughs> that's very possible too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, some really good coke yeah. he's just feeling yeah. super confident <laughs> but yeah i mean as he said like he he was he loved to shock people so yeah i listen i i can understand i can actually imagine the level of outrage there must have been i just like i for me it was just like kind of rolled my eyes and said yeah whatever <laughs> yeah 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 that's how, that's how i take it too yeah but it's something that unfortunately you know is gonna be there for the rest of his his you know well not life but just you know infamy as it were so and it goes along with everything else with this film that you know oh well clearly they thought they were going to be you know, so great and you know it didn't da, 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 karma yeah right well if he had said it about jive talking or something it would be like whatever yeah. nobody would pay attention to him but because he said it about this movie that people have deemed the worst movie of all time it sets up a great joke yeah. you know it's like <laughs> exactly i mean all to be fair though he was right. No, that was my attempt at a joke. See how oh, some yeah. things can't yeah. be taken. It's true. Nobody remembers. Great. Now, Beatles now remember. that's gonna go crazy on Beatles forums. Yeah, who are the Beatles again? Um... Yeah, I mean they don't even exist anymore. No, it's like, but Sgt. Pepper is so, you know lauded that it's like now it's edgy to say like well i don't think it was their best album anyway they didn't yeah. do very much i mean you know it's not like other bands haven't done it better like yeah well <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss music history at some other point i mean it's funny because i'm not actually the biggest sergeant pepper album fan in the world and my my tastes kind of go like revolvers like yeah the same yeah but yeah, but, the, but you know the, the people who think it's the only thing that ever existed versus the people who just like have to drag it and say what crap it is without understanding yeah. everything <laughs> that went into making that album that didn't exist in those days you know just everything was done with like stone knives bearskins and you know uh exacto knives um <laughs> yeah it, it, there's a happy medium <laughs> I, I i have a bunch of beatles vinyl as well so i have you know abbey road i have uh uh pepper of course and and a few others so i also appreciate them separately from the bgs can i say one thing that we didn't really talk about um i did like the plot like the sort of um <laughs> the, the loose plot of this movie and just the mythology of sergeant pepper yeah 
And like, I've really enjoyed that opening segment where they went through each decade of Americana or whatever Mm -hmm. and, um, and and did it in different musical styles. I've really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, There there definitely is like like some really good kernels of story that had somebody else. I think if they hadn't been doing it on the cheap and they had actually had somebody, a better writer, it actually would have been a, it could have been a really good movie. There, there definitely are elements that they could have pulled on and there's some great stuff in there. And yeah, then the whole like time travel thing and then the fantasy at the end and Billy Preston is the live weather vane guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, yeah, it's got some, it, there's some really good stuff to work with. It would, it's just a shame that it kind of didn't go the way they wanted it to. Um, but yeah, that, that, the, and the playing with musical styles was fun too. So, yeah, I think in terms of, you know, movie wise, narratively or whatnot, um, getting, them actually recovering the instruments, instruments. it was very quick. It was very yes. uh, like f- on film, on the actual picture. Like they mm-hmm. would grab the instrument and run, but you never, they never like showed you close up at the instrument or whatever. They never, it wasn't like they did, they, they didn't make it drama. It was like, all right, now go grab this. And it's like, oh, by the way, the drum was in the van the whole time. And it was like, <laughs> they kind of glossed over that part a little bit yeah and they could have um, made it much more of a quest um yeah. you know like you know just trying to get to that stuff that would have been a whole movie in itself and actually would have worked really well but again i think that's where the this movie succeeds actually because i did think when i was watching it i was like i love that this movie is not getting bogged down in like Lord of the Rings yeah, with like the ring type of Yes, and like this whole plot, like there's no side plot of like the sto- the instruments get restolen and then they have to go back and the, like th- that's usually a point in a lesser movie where it, things start to sag and it starts to really kind of drag mm-hmm. along. And this movie didn't. I liked the length of it. it. You know, it wasn't too long. They got in and out. They did whatever they had to do, and none of the plots or subplots dragged on. Again, uh, you know, thinking of it in terms, it, this it kept my attention span as like a three or four year old. So well done, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, I actually I ran a couple of polls on the podcast Twitter and Instagram pages, and just to see. I mean, I guess the responses would have been mainly from BG's fans, but I was interested to see that one hundred percent said they loved the movie and i i didn't really give them an in-between option i gave them love it or hate it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah they they all went with love it which i I thought was interesting considering you know we're kind of led to believe that beatles fans hate it and i don't know i guess bg's fans a lot of them just don't like to mention it maybe pretend it never happened but yeah Yeah. i i think that bg's fans are a lot like beatles fans where if you're a fan you're 100% 100% in and they could do no wrong type deal. Yeah. Um I I definitely could criticize or critique, I'll say critique, not criticize. Mm-hmm. Um like you know, I don't I don't I don't see them as perfect figures uh like some fans do. Mm-hmm. Um so I could definitely see some of the faults in Sgt. Pepper, but again, it, I don't I don't see a reason to get hung up on as uh, like the worst ever i think that's an overreaction yeah definitely uh so before we wrap up just does anyone else have any closing thoughts that we didn't we didn't kind of cover i i really want to show my kid it now and and see what he thinks and i also want to you know 
do drugs and <laughs> watch it or something. And, yeah, and you really probably should, not at the like, same time. <laughs> not at the same time, guaranteed. Um, yeah, for any uh, uh, child services people listening, that was not <laughs> yeah. not together. Um, but yeah, like I think watching it in an altered state would be interesting, and and watching it uh, and getting my uh, kid to watch it too. I really think it's one of those things that probably needs to be like looked at it with fresh eyes. Like, you know, cause a lot of cult movies were like complete bombs when they came out and people dragged them. Like I said, I just did this thing on head uh, for this book on cult classic movies. And while I wouldn't say Sgt. Pepper's a cult classic, it definitely is something where if you're going, like I said, I had not seen it in years, hadn't remembered in years and it was pleasant. It was fun. And I think there are people probably don't know the history or don't know the background. You sat them down and just like said, watch this they'd be okay with it or they might actually love it. So I think there's, it's one of those things where it's gotten bogged down with a lot of its history and a lot of the, Oh, well, everybody knows this sucks kind of thing, yeah. which is not necessarily true. And, you know, it, it gets bogged down on its, its own mythology, which is a shame because it's got some really good points. The soundtrack is great. Mostly um, you know, <laughs> vocoders, yeah. you know, side. Um, yeah. So I, it's, not it's something that people really should check out and make it their own decisions of and don't believe like rolling stone from 1979 yeah i I agree with all that um i think it's a really good fun enjoyable kids movie um you know it's colorful it's musical it's not too long it's easy to follow it's funny it's sad it's it's got um some sexy times (laughs) times <laughs> um, yeah tr- the, almost the entire cast is ridiculously good looking through the whole thing yeah, how, could that go, how could that be that's bad? true i really like that and i had all the same feelings that i did when i was like, a little kid i was just like oh i love this part where all the hot ladies come in and are like you know making out with them and stuff like that it was like it was just enough like it's not overly it's pg you know or like g almost it's like not too much for a little kid to deal with. Yeah. You know? um, like, I don't want to have to explain roofies, but if I do, I want it to be because of Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was a scene of the, there was like a little makeout scene of them in the barn yeah. of uh, Sandy Farina and Peter Frampton. And I remember that from when I was a kid. I thought that was super romantic when I was like four. Um, <laughs> it still struck me as kind of It was like, sweet. It's, it's it was cuddly. very sweet. It's not sexy. It's just, it's kind of like warm and fuzzy. The, the 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 dichotomy if I'm using that word right um, between uh, strawberry fields and Lucy is like perfect like sh- the strawberry fields the hometown girl she's yeah, you know yeah. the warm and fuzzies and and Lucy's the sexy street uh, you know uh, Hollywood type girl sequins Sequ- and, yeah. yeah like like that the, <laughs> they they portray that great so um yeah, there you go. If I guess if you're a, a Beatles fan or a Bee Gees fan and you haven't seen this movie because you're put off by the reviews, I guess the moral of this podcast is don't dismiss it, you know? Lighten up. Lighten yeah. up. Just like <laughs> And get your hands on some weed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and let your kids see it. There you go. <laughs> but not at the same time. Not no. at the same time. <laughs> Unless your kids are over 18 or something. Yeah. And also, you know, if you're in a weed legal state, get some edibles and, you know, just kind of mellow exactly. out and have fun. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and and pop the popcorn ahead of time. Just be ready. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have to go to the bathroom, you won't probably miss anything plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's It's been great. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Thanks once again for joining me for this latest episode of Gibology. Let me know your thoughts by getting in touch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at BGSpod. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to leave a rating or review, it would be much appreciated. That's all for now. Stay tuned for more and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.